Hello again, New York, and welcome to our listeners from across the United States and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York City's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. And no, I don't have a bad cold. I actually had some deviated septum surgery last week, and I'm healing nicely, but I sound like I'm pretty stuffed up, so apologies. Uh, On most of our shows, we focus on a particular neighborhood. We explore its history, its vibe, and its energy. What makes the neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Occasionally, I'll host a show about an interesting part of the city that's not about one particular neighborhood. For example, one of our fine urban parks, an extraordinary museum, the history of our transit system, the city in an age of a particular social or political movement, or maybe a musical genre, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. Each episode will be informative, entertaining, illuminating, and of course, we'll have fun. We always have fun on Rediscovering New York. Excuse me. And each show will be available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. Today, we are going to showcase Morningside Heights, that neighborhood on the hill above the Upper West Side. And our first guest is Gregory Dietrich. Gregory is a longtime resident of Morningside Heights, and he's been engaged in efforts to preserve the neighborhood. A graduate of Columbia University's Historic Preservation and Real Estate Development Programs, Gregory has worked in the field of historic preservation for over 19 years. He's worked in both the public and private sectors, serving as the acting director of the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, their Historic Preservation Grant Program, sorry, of the uh, Landmarks Preservation Commission's Historic Preservation (laughs) Grant Program, uh, before joining the Cultural Resource Consulting Group in 2002, where he managed the New York office. At the... uh, Cultural Resource Consulting Group, got all these acronyms, I'm getting tongue-tied here. Uh, Gregory was a project manager and principal investigator on a myriad of cultural resource studies, while also serving as the company's director of historic preservation. In 2009, he established Gregory Dietrich Preservation Consulting, where his work has entailed historic preservation, architectural and landscape studies, and included grant writing. In addition to consulting, Gregory has served as an adjunct instructor at the Fashion Institute of Technology since 2008 and is currently teaching a seminar entitled Case Studies in Historic Preservation within NYU's Art History, Urban Design, and Architectural Studies Department. In addition to teaching, he has served as a guest lecturer, panelist, and tour guide for a range of educational, cultural, and civic institutions both here and abroad. And it's with great pleasure that we welcome Gregory Dietrich. Welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome to Rediscovering New York. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from originally? Are you from New York? Uh, No, I'm originally from California. I grew up in a beach town called Pacific Palisades, which is a suburb of L.A. And I'm the son of a fine artist who essentially moved there before it sort of became what it is today, which is a, a much better known place. And what brought you, usually people move from this coast to the other coast. You don't generally find people moving from California dreaming to to the East Coast. But you're here among us. How did you you arrive here? I understand that. I um, have always had a fascination with New York. I came here uh, starting in high school on um, holiday trips. And those were pretty much um, trips all about seeing Broadway shows. And I thought I would really like to live here but I don't know how I could afford it. And ultimately, I thought I will probably not move to New York until I have a job that takes me here. And that's what happened. And was that job originally in historic preservation or something related to it? No, it was not. It was actually uh, to assist a biographer as a researcher. And his um, main subjects were film personalities. So I worked on books on Elizabeth Taylor, uh, James Dean, Ingrid Bergman, um, a treatment on the life of Jesus, which was the ultimate superstar, I guess. Uh, And then the last uh, subject that I worked on with him was the life of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And it was through researching her life that I learned about the field of historic preservation and ultimately decided to go back to school for that. Oh, wow. Wow. And, uh, and how did you get engaged with Morningside Heights? How long have you lived there? What was it that had you come to the, come to the neighborhood? 
So when I moved to New York, I was sharing an apartment um, with three dancers and living on 100th uh, and Central Park West, basically renting a cell of a room. And ultimately, um, a friend of mine from college had, al- had moved here with her husband before me, and she had discovered Morningside Heights. And she uh, ended up buying a unit in a co-op in Morningside Heights. And she said, you should think about buying instead of renting. You could be paying less in mortgage and maintenance than you do in rent. Uh, which, of course, wasn't true because I was renting a cell of a room, you know, not very expensive. But it did sort of open my eyes to the possibility of owning. And ultimately, I came up to Morningside Heights. I will never forget it. I walked onto that Columbia campus, and I thought I was in Versailles. I just could not believe my eyes. And the rest is history, as they say. So it is, yeah. Well, of course, Morningside Heights wasn't always like that. Um, let's talk about the history a bit. Uh, like much of Manhattan, what became Morningside Heights probably had a lot of farmland in the beginning, even though it was up on hills and bluffs. Was there Were there farms up there once upon a time? There were. Uh, the farms are very early um, with the Dutch occupation of New York, New Amsterdam, that is, uh, tobacco crops and other types of agricultural um, um, you know, farms, essentially. Uh, and then as... We get into the early, uh, well, late 18th century. Um, you see sort of the advent of country estates sort of scattered around, but also shanty towns as well. So there was a small village known as Bloomingdale that was, I think, between 107th and 112th um, on the west side. That was this kind of little sort of modest enclave. Uh, and then you had these country estates. How long back does the Bloomingdale uh, town go to? When, when did it first have rumblings? <laughs> Sounds like it uh, would have been rumblings if it was a shanty town. Yes, we're talking about... Um, it, Bloomingdale is essentially early 1800s. Uh, yeah. yeah. But of course, the neighborhood has... Uh, that part of Manhattan does have a, a storied history when it came to the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Uh, there were lots of battles that were fought up and down, and as basically was a, an organized retreat. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible, uh, actually, when you think about the land up there and what was what had transpired in terms of the Revolutionary War. Um, following the Battle of Long Island, uh, which then, uh, in the dead of night, when Washington brought the troops over to Manhattan as a means of escaping um, the British, uh, there was the Battle of Kipps Bay. And then from there, he and the troops uh, started advancing up north and then west, ending up in really what the area of uh, where Barnard and Columbia are. Uh, between 109th and 125th is sort of the larger area of the battle, but my understanding is that the real um, hard-won campaign in which the Continental uh, troops prevailed was uh, at the location of, of Barnard, uh, known as Buckwheat Fields, in September of 1776. And there's a plaque today on the mathematics building on Broadway um, at Columbia, as you're walking up Broadway, uh, that commemorates this very famous battle. Is it on the Columbia or the Barnard side of the street? I've forgotten. It's on the Columbia side. side. Yes, on Broadway. It's quite a a large plaque. If you haven't seen it, I I recommend that our listeners have a look at it when they're up in in the neighborhood. Yeah. Bloomingdale, that also harkens to a name of an insane asylum. Did the, did the yeah. name come from the same place as the shantytown, or was there a different Bloomingdale who decided to... Uh, no, that's uh, where the name came from. I mean, it, it, it goes back to, of course, uh, Dutch meaning Vale of Flowers. Um, so that this is an old Dutch name, and Bloomingdale Road, which um, some of which became modern-day Broadway, uh, is sort of the origin of the name and how it sort of makes its way. Uh, but the Bloomingdale Insane Asylum uh, was something far different with far different associations, which was essentially um, not a pox on your hood, but a stigma in this neighborhood. Um, Bloomingdale Insane Asylum uh, opens in 1821. It is in the location of where Columbia is today. That is the core campus of Columbia. And it was one Set of... quite a precedent for some folks, but anyway, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really one of, one of three reasons that the, the area did not develop um, in the same way and at the same time as the Upper West Side and Harlem. 
uh, surrounding that. Oh, because that's something I also wanted to ask you, because the, de- the residential development uh, in Morningside took place at a later uh, time than, than, of course, on the Upper West Side. Or, I'm sorry, the, the, the residential development in Morningside Heights uh, came later than on the Upper West Side and even later than Harlem. I mean, Harlem has uh, uh, many, many structures that date before 1900, but Morningside right. Heights, you really don't find a lot of residences that are that old. That's right. And, and the, so the reasons being, one was uh, that the Bloomingdale Asylum sort of reigned supreme and the stigma associated with, with that institution. Um, secondly, the topography, the natural topography of the Heights um, was really sort of an island, uh, maybe an island in the sky, because you see this gradual... Um, increase in the grade as you head north from 110th Street, that is, you know, west of uh, Amsterdam, west of Morningside Drive, actually, and then um, sort of reaching the peak at around 116, 117th, and then it, it decreases again. So that topography also was a reason that uh, there was not development really happening in droves like it was in surrounding places. Uh, and then the third factor was essentially that mass transit um, had not, to a large extent, been introduced into the area. Hmm. And is, was the advent of mass transit what helped spur development in the neighborhood? Yes. Oh. The yes. railroad was? Yes. Well, actually, uh, specifically the subway extension. The subway extension in 1904 um, creates a frenzy of anticipation in terms of what this neighborhood can become. But it's that coupled with the decision uh, by the Bloomingdale Asylum to relocate up to White Plains in the 1880s, thereby freeing up huge tracts of land. So um, in addition to the fact that it's available by mass transit, you also have various institutions that are also thinking we need to expand, we need larger um, areas for our complexes. This area is ripe for us. Hmm. Did, I mean, you talked about the subway opening up in 1904. Uh, the L train was up there some years before that, I think. That's right. Did, did that in any way help spur development or decisions on the part of the, the institutions that we're going to talk about in a, in a couple of minutes to to decide to move up there or to build up there? Did well, what's so interesting about the, the L, uh, and I'm specifically referring to the 9th Avenue L, is what you um, can understand about this is that the L, when it's divi- um, running up 9th Avenue, which today, of course, we know as Columbus Avenue, it then um, makes a S curve as it goes east of what is today Morningside Park and then north again up Morningside Avenue in Harlem or Manhattan Valley. So essentially what is happening there is you've got a form of mass transit that is completely bypassing this neighborhood. So it really is not sort of contributing to uh, the development there. It's it's really the anticipation of the subway and then that there is this um, trolley that's also running up Amsterdam at this time. Okay, well, when we come back in a moment, we're going to be talking about the institutions that uh, were established there more than 100 years ago that led to the further development of Morningside Heights. We'll be back in a moment with Gregory Dietrich. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Follow Me Friday Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your your digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! (laughs) (laughs) 
Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York, and our first guest, Gregory Dietrich. Gregory, why don't you tell us about your historic preservation business? Uh, sure. I have been um, doing this for myself as a sole proprietor for the past nine years. And when people ask me what I do, I essentially tell them that I deal in significance, uh, because that is sort of my task daily in my work is to evaluate the significance of historic properties, whether it's buildings or structures or objects or landscapes. And my work is primarily as an architectural historian. So it is consisting of research, analysis, survey, and writing. And who are your typical clients? Yeah, good question. Uh, so often, um, my clients actually span the gamut. I consult directly to municipalities as their expert that help them with their preservation commissions in their reviews of their applications uh, for redevelopment. Um, I work with nonprofits. I write grants to help them get money to restore their historic buildings. Uh, I help property owners who have buildings in historic districts or individual landmarks that are seeking approvals for changes with the Landmarks Preservation Commission. Uh, and then I also work with developers with respect to uh, historic tax credits. And I complete that application uh, to help them get the tax credit for rehabbing buildings. And you're also involved with, I don't remember the name exactly, but the, the, the Preservation Society of Morningside Heights? Uh, yes, it's the uh, Morningside Heights Historic District Committee. Uh, and they've been kicking around since 1996. And I became involved with them in 2009 to help them in their effort to uh, get a historic district designated. Um, their work is not done, <laughs> but, but we were very happy uh, two years ago when the Landmarks Commission designated the first historic district oh, great. in Morningside Where, Heights. What's the boundaries of the historic district in Morningside Heights? What's the? Yeah, so it connects to the south to the West End Extension, uh, which is at 107th. It runs up along the west side, so up Riverside, with jogs toward Broadway up to 119th Street. And then also it has um, a substantial corridor down Cathedral Parkway to Amsterdam that takes in those apartment houses that flank both sides of the street there. Oh, great. It's a, it's a sizable district. It's a, uh, we're very pleased. And no doubt the Historic Districts Council was helpful in, in getting that designation as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. They are f indispensable. One of, my, one of my favorite organizations in the city. Um, speaking about the history of Morningside Heights, uh, there were decisions by three major institutions uh, to move up there. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about the decision of the uh, Episcopal Archdiocese of New York to, to, to build a new cathedral in Morningside Heights? So part of this comes from, um, that is St. John the Divine, that, that whole development comes from really a desire to put the Episcopal Diocese on the map in New York City, especially, though, of course, this is uh, for the entire state. Um, basically, they had seen what uh, the Catholic Archdiocese had done with St. Patrick's Cathedral and how that had become such an icon of, you know, for the, for the faith in Midtown, uh, but they were searching for something that would be um, not only imposing, but also occupy a very um, commanding location. And so when you read early press about this proposal for this cathedral, um, they are making allusions to internationally significant landmarks in terms of how this is going to uh, basically rival them. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got articles in the Catholic journals that are disparaging of, of the Episcopalians. Uh, at one, in one article, I remember them saying, you know, uh, who, who cares if, if they want to do such a thing? Let the children have their toy. Wow. Yeah. And of course, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine is a magnificent structure. 
Uh, it is not only the largest cathedral in the world, it's also also the largest designed Gothic structure in the world. Yes, largest Gothic. And yeah. I learned uh, on a tour I uh, went on there not too long ago that there are actually two styles. If you look at the front part of the cathedral, uh, it's much more Romanesque and a little Byzantine. But uh, uh, they changed uh, architects at some point, maybe in the teens, maybe around the time of the First War. That's and, right. And then it's Gothic now. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, well, I also heard an interesting story, too, that uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller had helped fund the construction of the cathedral, but they wouldn't put him on the board. <laughs> That's when he helped found Riverside Church. Um, what had St. Luke's Hospital decide that they would relocate most of their facilities from Midtown up to up to Morningside? And when did that happen? So uh, also part of the stories of these institutions is that they are able to se- secure large donors that purchase land. And in the case of St. Luke's uh, being an Episcopalian um, hospital, it seemed to be a natural for it to be opposite St. John the Divine. And so you uh, actually see that there are quite a few trustees of both institutions. They, they share both institutions, involvement with both. And would the same also have to do with Columbia University as well? Because Columbia when decided to move their main campus also in the 1890s, I think, didn't they? From- they did, yes. So they, they um, had... I believe it's two other sites before that, certainly lower Manhattan, and then they were in Midtown uh, around where Rockefeller Center is. And so uh, this was actually the vision of Seth Lowe, the president of the university at the time, who was um, really saw that there, there could be, um, well, what he later deemed the Acropolis of the New World, so that um, Morningside Heights would become an instit- uh, series of institutions of higher learning with Columbia as the centerpiece. And when you look at the neighborhood, you're walking around the neighborhood, you can really see how that plays out with Lowe Library, uh, which was the first building completed at Columbia in 1897, uh, really occupies this centerpiece of land surrounded by these other institutions. And in fact, at the time it was built, uh, there was nothing in terms of looking southward that was impeding the view of Manhattan uh, to the south. So it must have been actually pretty spectacular to be looking up and seeing this beautiful uh, library uh, modeled after the Pantheon. Now, what led to the construction of, of the residential buildings in Morningside Heights? Because they seem to come at a time in the style of the Upper West Side, but a little bit afterward, and certainly very different from the buildings down the hill in Harlem. Yes, they are. The whole residential development of Morningside Heights, um, in terms of really the frenzy of speculative real estate development of middle-class apartment houses, comes about with the introduction of the subway extension in 1904. Um, As I said before, there was anticipation about the subway extension. So they were not waiting for the subway actually to be completed. Uh, They started filing building permits before then. And so that between 1900 and 1910, 60% of the residential buildings um, that we see today were constructed in the neighborhood, which is pretty amazing when you think of all that construction happening all of a piece. Wow. Such a limited time frame. You know, we know St. John was started in the 1890s, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Um, when was Riverside Church begun? When did that go up? So Riverside Church um, does have an interesting story with respect to John D. Rockefeller, um, the second. And John D. Rockefeller uh, had great aspirations for St. John the Divine as an ecumenical church, that is, to be all-inclusive. And when he learned that that was not the direction that they were going to be going with, of course, the diocese of the Episcopal um, denomination, uh, he decided that he was going to build a rival church. So uh, 1930, he uh, basically was able to acquire the land and commission architects to build Riverside Church. I want to say something fascinating about Riverside Church is that although it references medieval um, style in terms of uh, Chartres. And uh, there's another one as well that escapes me right now, but that it is 
been constructed according to modern construction technologies. So it's steel reinforced masonry construction, unlike St. John the Divine, which was actually constructed according to medieval building traditions and hence never completed. I, uh, this tour I went on at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine last month, it was, a, they didn't call it this, but I'll call it a rafter tour when you went up to, onto the roof and up the, it's unbelievable. I mean, just the, the and, and, to, and to behold that, that mammoth construction and all angles of it was, was really, really something. Um, when did the Union Theological Seminary get built? Was that around the time of Riverside Church? Uh, it predates it. It's actually in the 1900s, um, around 1907, that complex gets constructed. It's preceded by Jewish Theological Seminary, which uh, was originally constructed in 1902 and then had its campus replaced in 1930 with what's there now. Oh, it did. I've only seen the... Well, obviously, I'm not older than 1930. I was born after 1930, but uh, I've been to, to the Jewish Theological right. Seminary. Right, um, And then of, yeah. then, of course, we have the Venerable Grant's Tomb. Yes. Uh, of, where no one is buried, by the way. Uh, That's right. <laughs> that is right. Grant and his wife, Julia, are entombed there. Right. Um, uh, was, did Grant have any history in New York aside from being entombed here or, uh, or not? I, well, yes, it. he was governor of New York. And, uh, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So I should have known did. that, but yeah. I did. Yeah, he is definitely a point of pride in terms of his accomplishments. He's a war hero and civil war hero and president and as uh, governor. And for those of you, I, I'm a native New Yorker. I'm, I'm 58 years old now. And the first time I went actually inside Grant's tomb was three or four years ago. It's a, it's a sight not to be equaled anywhere in this country. I, it, it almost looks like Napoleon's tomb. Yeah, uh, and it was modeled after the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. I mean, it, it, it is, I believe, either the largest or the second largest tomb in the United States. Wow. Yeah, it, by John it, Duncan, who did uh, the Soldiers and Sailors Arch uh, in front of Prospect Park. Ah, okay. Yeah. And those two, those two granite, red granite sarcophagi are, are yeah. you know, yes. to be beholden. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you want to talk about your contact information for your business so any of our listeners sure. who are uh, intrigued by what you do can, can uh, email you, can call you? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to just respond to questions if people have any questions about uh, what I do or my services. Uh, I think the best thing for one to do is to just to go to the website at gdpreservationconsulting.com. So that's all one word, gdpreservationconsulting. Well, Gregory Dietrich, it's been a great pleasure having you on Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. And, I appreciate uh, it. We will see you around. Thanks. Oh, uh, when we come back, we will uh, be with our second guest, Abdi Abu Jamal, who is the founder and owner of Morningside Heights Oasis Gym and Juice Bar. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m. we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from the Mark Myman team, mortgage specialists at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. One thing our show is not, we're not a business show about real estate, but there is a really good one. It's called Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. It can be heard live on Tuesday mornings, and you can get it at voiceamerica.com. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, We're Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Surprise, surprise on that handle. And you can also follow me on Instagram. Uh, My Instagram handle is jeffgoodmannyc. If you have questions or comments, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, you can email me at jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. We're pleased to welcome our second guests, Abdi Abu-Jamal. Uh, Abdi Salam Abu-Jamal is the owner of Oasis Gym and Juice Bar in Morningside Heights. It's on the west side of Broadway, right off Teeman Place. Abdi's early life was anything but easy. His father was their village's holistic doctor, and after tragically losing his dad in a car accident at age 11, Abdi spent his teenage years wandering on foot between villages in Ethiopia and Kenya, working as a doctor in a neighboring town, as a cook in a mining village, and as a fruit cart vendor in a Kenyan refugee camp. It was very difficult to get ahead, though, and he was even thrown in jail for not having a vendor's license. He was regularly threatened by police who thought he was part of an anti-governmental group, and whenever he'd finally cobbled together a reasonable amount of money, he'd get robbed. One bright spot, he met and married an aspiring doctor. After applying for refugee status multiple times, Abdi immigrated to New York in 2012, and his wife followed soon after. He was working three jobs at Newark Airport and hoping to become a community organizer. Then he found out he was diabetic. Between shifts, he started learning about holistic nutrition, building on the lessons he'd learned from his father. The idea to open a juice bar was born. We're going to leave the rest of his life story to him to share with us. It's my pleasure to welcome Abdi Abu-Jamel to Rediscovering New York. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Um, so tell us a bit about your background. You're from Ethiopia originally, and your, your, your early life story is, is such a challenge. I mean, uh, uh, did you, when you lost your dad, did, did you, was your mom around? Did you have a mom at that point? Uh, yes, uh, I just uh, born a small village in Ethiopia, and uh, when I lost my dad, uh, my mom she's around with me as uh, another sibling. Huh. What was it like traveling around at a relatively young age, being on your own? You started moving around and these other jobs when you were fourteen. Yes, uh, traveling by yourself when you're a teenager is fun, by another way, exciting. Uh, because no one they can control you, you can do whatever you want in life. That's the assumption, that's the, the first thought in your mind. But when you go into in reality, this life is very difficult without parenting, without someone care for you. Everything in your life, uh, every decision you make is going to lay on you. So it's going to be very challenging traveling by yourself when you're young. Hmm. When did you first apply to come to the United States? What year was that? Uh, first, is, uh, I was in Kenya, refugee camp. Uh, I apply because I can't work in Kenya. Uh, I don't have any uh, paper to live there. The Kenyan police very harassing because of the corruption. And uh, I try apply a lot of uh, asylum including Canada, Australia, Norway, to go get out of Africa by anything necessary. So the first one, I think 1999, I applied for Riverside Church to get me a sponsor. Uh, the Riverside Church, uh, they reject uh, my asylum. Uh, the second one, uh, Lutheran Church. The Lutheran Church, we apply with a group of refugees from Ethiopia. 
And then finally, our asylee and getting process, but the process, they take almost five years to get it granted. And was it done through, what did a specific religious organization sponsor you when you, when you put an application in for asylum? Uh, no, really. What was happened, if United Nations guarantee you through refugee, you, you have a case to get out of your country. So what the United Nations, they don't give you third world, uh, third country. Was this through the United uh, Nations uh, uh, High Commission for Refugees? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. So they ask you if you have any sponsor, any country. So that time they had a lot of information who is sponsoring zero refugee from refugee camp, including church, uh, different organization, or parent, or family, or friend who can sponsor you to come to USA. So it happened to my uh, sponsorship as Lutheran Church. How old were you when you first arrived to the US, Abdi? Uh, I was uh, 24 years old when I arrived in New York. It was uh, 2004. And what was it like when you first, uh, I don't know if you, uh, I'm assuming you got off a plane. Did you Did you come to New York? Was this your first place that, that you came to, or Newark, or? Uh, uh? Yeah. it's. Uh, very exciting. We have been, I've been waiting for almost six, seven years. Always my dream is to come to USA and then uh, all my problems are going to be solved. That's my assumption. And I arrived in New York airport uh, April 2004. Uh, for me, it's going like heaven. I didn't know what I'm going to expect. I'm going to get a big house, big car, all money. <laughs> and, uh, but the, when I arrive, you know, the first day is exciting. The second day is totally opposite. Uh, in refugee camp on Kenya, everybody is your friend. Everybody, they come buy you coffee, you chat, you, t- you know, you share life. When I arrive here, you're in another planet because the c- culture has changed. You don't communicate. There's no there's the language barriers. It's so sharp. Did you speak English when you first arrived here or not? Uh, no, I speak English. Uh-huh. So, so what were your first couple of weeks like after you arrived? What did you, what did you do to find work? What did you do to... Uh, yeah, I'm so excited. Uh, I left a wife and back home and uh, family to, to, to help. I have a lot of promise myself, which is I didn't tell anyone. To make money, help family, help community back home with my dad stop so i didn't waste any time second day i walk around the broadway it's a 143rd i remember i work one uh laundromat i ask if got any job they told me do you never work i say yes by you know sign language so i get second day a job laundromat So how did you wind up in the business in the field of nutrition and juices? It's, uh, what, uh, that's a long way from, from what you started doing when you, when you arrived here. Yes, uh, I live in Harlem since I came in uh, 2004. Uh, I work in New York airport, three, sometimes three jobs, sometimes four jobs. So when I don't have a time to cook inside a home, I always eat from airports, fast food. And then uh, my diabetic get worse. Even I don't know what the diabetic is. Very hard to communicate with the doctor. Always doctor tell you add another increase, another dose, another dose. So finally, when did you find out you were diabetic? What was I was in a refugee camp. Ah, when yeah, you found well, out. Yeah, yeah. The, the U.S. embassy they told me you are, you got diabetic. So finally, I don't know what it cost me. I'm I'm eating. I sleeping. I'm still have a week always. I don't get healed. When my dad diagnosed people, make sure that guy or that person, they don't come back again because the treatment is right. So I start nutrition, question myself if I'm eating, if I'm he- what make me cause. So I study a little bit nutrition, change my diet, and instead of processing food, what I eat from outside, I get feel better. So when I have awareness, uh, instead of, wasting my money or wasting my appetite to eat anywhere. There's nowhere in the morning side height, uh, affordable, fresh, healthy, quick. 
there's nothing restaurant like that. There's always a lot of processing food. So the idea of, oh, there's a lot of people suffering that way. They want to eat healthy. They want to be affordable, but there's no option. So that's why I get my personal responsibility to address this issue. That's why I opened Juice Bar. But your first uh, efforts into sharing nutrition with others was not opening in your own business, was it? You, you were talking in schools and churches and nursing homes and trying to, to educate people to the, to the benefits of, of different, that, that different foods aside from the ones they were eating would actually be, be healthy for them. Uh, first, I, uh, yeah, I tried that, but uh, it's no big way. Just in the community, in my family, well, the, my friend, but the big church and the school after I opened my juice bar, because opening juice bar, I, I, I thought it's going to solve this problem. When I enter the business, people still have lack of awareness what in the supermarket, what the ingredients to read, uh, uh, what ingredients to read. That time I started going uh, elementary school, church, even Columbia uh, university to share what we're eating today affect us tomorrow. And your first location was on 139th Street that you opened? Was it? Uh, uh, my first location, 124 in Broadway by Timan Place. And oh, Lassau. the one you're Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. My, yeah. my mistake, I thought. So what had you decided to, coming back to Morningside Heights, uh, what had you decided to open a business in Morningside Heights? Uh, I live there. I live at uh, 3115 Broadway. So that's my responsibility. And that's the lack of uh, nutrition and healthy fooding. There's nothing there. So I have to fill that gap in my neighborhood. Well, before we talk about why you chose the location you're in, I want to ask you something about something you have on your wall. You have an interesting quote. Uh, I'm going to read it. It is health that is real wealth and not pieces of gold and silver. It's very uncommon to have a quote from Mahatma Gandhi in a restaurant wall. What uh, had you decided that that was going to be something that you wanted people to see when they walked through the door into your business? Uh, living in New York is a very temptation, especially when we come to food. Uh, having that quote and other uh, important about healthy philosophy is I want to give for my community uh, anything, uh, make them aware. Our health is important than piece of gold. If we have a gold, we don't enjoy it. If we have a health, we enjoy it. So that's my philosophy and others. Hmm. And how long have you? How long have you been open in Morningside Heights for? Uh, I opened uh, 2012, almost six years. Ah. Yes. Okay. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Abdi Abu Jamal owner and founder of the Oasis Jimba Juice Bar. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com 
We're back to Rediscovering New York. I'm Jeff Goodman, and our second guest is Abdi Abu-Jamel. Uh, I just want to take a moment to, to say that New York, we talk about New York neighborhoods, but one thing about this extraordinary city that has been the same for um, probably since the 1840s is that somewhere near 40% of the people who live in our great city have not even been born in the United States. This is an amazing melting pot, and it's an amazing gateway for people who have chosen to come to the United States. Uh, the smarter ones, of course, decide, uh, of course, decide to stay here, <laughs> like some who decide to move to other parts of the country. New York centric, obviously, uh, but uh, it is such a wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, and uh, right before our program, uh, Abdi was really, really uh, generous in bringing a whole bunches of juices, and all of us in the studio have been enjoying them. So uh, I want to ask you, Abdi, what, what kind of, of, of juices do you have in your business? What are the things that are a little unusual? Because I've had a couple of samplings, and they're all really good. Uh, I have a variety of juice. Almost if you go my menu, I have a more than 44 uh, menu items. I usually mostly like... I chose my juice ingredients based on nutrition. I have a lot of avocados in my smoothie. All my smoothies have green on it, kale or spinach or parsley. Uh, the reason I did that, because a lot of people, they don't get the daily dose of green. So if the taste is good, uh, look is good, nutrition-wise, it's very have vitamins and minerals. Is it important for everyone to have green during the day as opposed to other berries or fruits? Is like a green vegetables really that, that important? That's a uh, nutrition question. Uh, green is, uh, yeah, detoxifying because we, we have a lot of uh, um, toxic in our system. The breeze we do, the drink we eat, and the alkaline, the coffee, the alcohol we drink is a harm in our body. So when we have a green drink, uh, leafy drink, that's a detox a little bit. So that's why we need a green a lot. I know you live in Morningside Heights now and your business is there. Um, what are some of the things that you, aside from you uh, sharing your, your food and your well-being with people, uh, what is it that you like about Morningside Heights and having a business in Morningside Heights? Uh, I like uh, Morning Heights because of uh, there's a lot of institutions. Let's say, example, like Columbia. Um, Do you get a lot of students in, in your shop? Yeah, I get a lot of students. And there's a different uh, people around me, the mixed people. So uh, it's like home for me, especially. Coming from East Africa, uh, live in Morning Heights. It's my second home. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, does the neighborhood excite you at all? Is there anything about the neighborhood that excites you? Yeah, all uh, I'm putting you on the spot a little by asking that question. That's okay. Yeah, all neighborhoods, yeah, they excite me a lot uh, because uh, uh, I can see all family coming together in my juice bar. And uh, we have a little park uh, by Riverside Park. And that's all excite me. In the relatively short time that you've had your business there, but a little bit longer that you've lived in the neighborhood, have you seen the neighborhood change? Have you seen the neighborhood evolve at all? Uh, yeah, I, I see a lot of change. Uh, I, I arrived in 2004, now we are in 2019. I see a lot of change uh, during that period. Uh, even after I opened my business, I've been seeing a lot of change in a good way and some n part of negative way too. Oh Well, what kind of changes have you seen, both good and bad? What do you like about the changes and what are you not so keen on? Mm, I like uh, mostly... Uh, there's a lot of service we're getting right now. Uh, um, and uh, there's a clean, uh, there's a safe a lot. Uh, but the other side is uh, the property is v very much expensive, especially for small business. There have been a lot of small business that have been shut it off from uh, mom and dad shop. And uh, there's a lot of... Uh, chain store they have been coming in the neighborhood so that little bit hard time but uh if the changes i love change because i'm part of the change so if but if we balance that change that'd be great as yeah. 
Well, you're part of that change and will continue to be part of that change, especially as a newer business. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of mm-hmm. unusual question I have. I, I've always wondered what it's like to have a business in that very small stretch of Broadway right under the train where the train comes up. Did you find anything unusual about it, having a business there? or? Uh, yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Uh, the subway above you and uh, you downstairs doing business every day. Especially when you do business, it's very loud and very crowded and stuff because of, you know, intersection and that. The unusual is mostly the noise. When the door open, the subway noise is going to come and then the customer. Sometimes the train is not there and then the people, they try to escape or stay there for a while. Uh-huh. So that's unusual event. Do you have any unusual customers with any uh, <laughs> just kind of interesting stories about, about them or without mentioning names, but just uh, to get a, a, a flavor of the neighborhood? A flavor of the neighborhood. Yeah, I, I get a lot of interesting. I have a lot of uh, movies, shutting, uh, the movie actors a lot and uh, famous people like 50 Cent or Ben Stiller. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of famous people, including... It's always something happened in our neighborhood and uh, TV journalists and show up at my juice bar uh-huh. uh, stay. Oh, cool. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, the Oasis Gym and Juice Bar is not the only venture you have. You're, you've also opened up the Oasis Powerhouse on 139th Street. Um, do you want to talk about that for, for us? Yes. Uh, Oasis Powerhouse is, uh, was a dream, like Oasis Gym and Juice. Um, when I, I, I drop out grade eight, I don't have background education. So when I see people come to my juice bar, they're seeking for something. They want to ask something. They want to they wanna heal themselves through uh, alternative. So I feel responsibility in my juice bar. They don't address all that issue unless I did something. So that's why I opened Oasis Powerhouse. Oasis Powerhouse is a non-profit organization. I don't have that much skill or talent to share for people, but all my customers, I have a nutritioner, I have a physician, I have a yoga teacher who come drink my juice every day. I ask them, if you give me your one hour talent or you can invest in my Oasis Powerhouse, share that with the community. So powerhouses, free activity, nutrition, yoga, meditation, kickboxing, uplifting, even entrepreneur class. I teach one class, which is entrepreneur, how I open my juice bar and then success with the juice bar. There's a lot of people who want to do business, but still uh, they didn't success it. I tell my step where I take. The other who has the same talent, so they can share their product or their service, so they can develop the community. Out of that, they might do business with themselves too. Hmm. How long has the powerhouse been open for? Oasis Powerhouse is uh, one and a half years, especially if you come Sunday night. We have a live jazz for the community. All musicians who live in Harlem, they can show up Sunday night. We have a free jazz for oh. all community. And what's the address of Oasis Powerhouse? Oasis Powerhouse is uh, 600 West 139th Street. Uh, you can go to the website, oasispowerhouse.org. And what time is, uh, is the jazz, does the jazz start from when to when? Uh, Sunday, the jazz starts from uh, 9 p.m. until the end, mm. 12 p.m. Um, as uh, an entrepreneur living the American dream and uh, opening up several locations of, of for-profit business and also a nonprofit, do you have any dreams or thoughts about opening up another location, another business? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. always uh, when I accomplish something and then I have another dream next one. Uh, the next comment, a little bit about environment activists. Like, as a business owner, I grew up in a village, came to New York City. I wonder where our all waste is gone. When I was I born in a village, when 80%, 95% our waste, it composts, it go in the garbage, and then they come soil. But in New York, when I see my uh, waste every day, that plastic and and composable. So I've been thinking about that. Some work on uh, progressive. Oh, great, great. 
Well, we've been speaking with Abdi Abu-Jamal. Abdi is an immigrant to the United States who now owns the Oasis Gym at Juice Bar and is the founder of the Oasis Powerhouse. Uh, and I have to say his juices are absolutely delicious. <laughs> uh, you must try them. What's the, what's the website of the Juice Bar? Uh, the website, oasisjjb.com. Oasisjjb.com. Oh, great. Abdi, thank you so much for joining us on Rediscovering New York today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. My pleasure indeed. Our pleasure, speaking on behalf of everyone in the studio. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Rediscovering New York, specializing or focusing on Morningside Heights. We have a real treat for you next Tuesday, uh, the 12th, which also happens to be Lincoln's birthday. My guest is going to be David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David and I, rather than talk about a neighborhood, we're going to be having a special show talking about presidents in New York City and the history of the presidents here. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow us on Instagram, jeffgoodmannyc. And also, again, apologies for my stuffy nose. Uh, it's probably the last time that uh, it will happen in this condition on this show. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And, of course, we have one other sponsor, me. I'm a real estate agent at Halstead Real Estate. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, I and my team provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. And thanks to our special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 